women were seen as as failed men. They were sort of embryos that had somehow gone wrong. (laughs) If you wanted to have a spiritual life as a woman, you had to run away from home. And to do that, you had to dress up as a man. And then all this stuff about how women don't really have souls and how they're inherently unstable because their uterus sort of migrates around the body, you know, all this sort of completely bonkers misunderstanding of human physiology. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the official launch of the Betwixt podcast. I'm Deb Gregory, curator and host. In partnership with Missio Alliance, I'm engaging conversation at the intersection of faith and culture. In today's conversation, we are kicking off our series of The Image of God and the Feminine Experience. If you missed our introductory episode, hey, good news, it's short. And you can listen to it at betwixtpodcast.com or missyoualliance.org or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Today, we jump in with what scholars call the substantive view of the Imago Dei. That's the fancy Latin theological term for the image of God. It's kind of a huge topic, but I'm going to boil it down like this. In the substantive view, the image of God was viewed as something that humans possess. It's the substance of who we are. Because God is spirit and does not have a physical body, many early Christians thought that the locus of God's image in man was the soul rather than the body. This resulted in an amplified value of the spiritual, rational, and moral makeup of man, and it devalued the body. Theologian Stanley Grantz wrote, Although most Christians today would be likely to assume that this view arises directly out of the Bible, the idea was actually introduced into Christian thought by those church fathers who were influenced by and grappled with the Greek philosophical tradition. So what is the Greek philosophical tradition? Well, this is where Dr. Hannah Hunt comes in. She's a church historian who will join us in just a few minutes, and she's going to draw out some of this Hellenistic tradition and and how the church grappled with and in many ways against it in their understanding of the Imago Dei. But there's a couple background pieces that I think are going to be important for us to recognize before we jump into this discussion. While there were many ideas circulating in Hellenistic times, the general belief was that the soul and the body were separate and distinguishable. So, for instance, Plato, he viewed the sexless soul as something bound to a profane and gendered body. He taught that carnal passions could be ruled through the cultivation of reason. Now, for Aristotle, the body held the shape and form of the soul— And he believed that the human soul had both rational faculties for things like deliberation and decision-making, and it had irrational faculties for things like emotion and appetite. And it was the belief that the irrational soul of women overpowered their rational faculties, and thus, they needed the authority and rule of men. Now, borrowing from and often revising upon this Greek thought, many church fathers not only adopted a Hellenistic disdain for the body, but also a view of women's inferiority. Alistair McGrath writes that, through cultural influence, quote, sexuality in general and femininity in particular came to be regarded with fear and suspicion in many early Christians. 
This view seemed to have been the case for Augustine, who made, oh gosh, so many complicated and often contradictory statements about women. For instance, he argued in his De Trinitat that because woman was made from man, she could not be in the image of God. Man, however, being without the defects of women, could bear God's image independently. Okay, so there is a lot that we could tackle here, but our main focus will remain on how these philosophical and theological beliefs impacted women. Now, I do want to say that the fundamental weakness of this view is that it begins with man. If we start first with the image, we end up projecting ourselves onto God rather than God onto us. And another weakness of this view is that it begins with men. Women were largely kept out of the theological discussions, silenced in the void between male-normed culture and doctrine. Okay, so now that we've set the framework, what impact did this substantive view have on women? So I called up Dr. Hannah Hunt. She's a church historian and a former senior lecturer in theology at Leeds Trinity University. Dr. Hunt is the author of the books Clothed in the Body and A Joy-Bearing Grief, along with numerous scholarly articles. She's also a professor of English and a published poet. I think she is a most fascinating woman who is no stranger to liminality. As a female scholar in the male-dominant field of patristic studies, I really appreciate her insight into the experience of women within the male-normed cultural and theological history of the early church. I talked with Dr. Hunt via Skype. Hello, can you hear me? I can, yes. Hi. As she sat in her study overlooking her lovely garden in Leeds, England. Can you share a little bit about your own journey as a woman betwixt and between so many things? Sure. Well, I think um, I'm very interested in the whole experience and concept of liminality. I'm very aware that, that women still occupy, in some ways, a very liminal role. And a lot of it is to do with their bodies. For myself, I'm extremely fortunate. I'm a, a white, middle-class, educated Western woman. How, how, how much more privileged could I be? And yet, um, as a scholar of the early church, I'm so aware that throughout history and today, women um, are marginalized and are put down. And some of it comes from some sort of religious understanding about their nature, about whether they can be ensouled um, and where they can and can't go within society and within the church. What I think is so fascinating about you is that you are not limited to one field. Um, I love that you also have another identity as well. Can you talk about who else you are? Well, um, my poet name is Hannah Stone. I've studied um, English and theology and creative writing, and I think all of these come together in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you think of the human person as having body, soul, mind, spirit, emotions, you know, in an average day, I'm as likely to be harvesting potatoes and soft fruit and watering my tomatoes. <laughs> and then I might come back and look on a poem. I've, I've got a poetry reading uh, tomorrow, reading some books, you know, so I do things every day that are to do with my body, my mind, my soul. And I, I'm i really interested in this idea of how you can integrate all those um, aspects of yourself into your personhood, especially as a woman, because I think there are these inherent challenges and um, the danger of being marginalized when you are a woman. Mm. 
Theological discourse was largely void of the feminine voice until quite recently. Can you share a little bit about your experience as a woman theologian and maybe some of your challenges in that field? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. Um, I find that there are very few female scholars in my field, especially as my field is patristics. It's the study of the church fathers. I've been invited to a number of countries to, to speak I'm invited by the Russian Orthodox Church, who are immensely hospitable, but invariably I am almost the only woman there, and very often the only person who's not in a cassock. I would say I've been received with respect, but a little bit of caution and some puzzlement, really, as to why might a woman be doing this <laughs> um, in a, an Orthodox seminary. The female students are only allowed to learn icon painting and music. They're not allowed to study theology. That is reserved for male seminarians. Wow. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm finding a way of actually reaching some female theology students in Moscow, but this is seen as very sort of radical and groundbreaking. Yet they invite to you to come and speak with them <laughs> yeah. about these things. Yes, yes. I wouldn't say I've been unwelcomed doing this, but you do feel quite isolated, I think. And often I have been in a very, very small minority among, um, you know, a group of men. So there's all sorts of socio-cultural, political things in the modern context, aren't there? And I'm, but some of it, just you think, blimey, you know, we could, we could still be in the second century, really, for all people have progressed in their thinking about it. <laughs> oh, well, let's let's go back yeah, to the second get, century. <laughs> to what you want to talk about? <laughs> what was the view of the body? in the Greco-Roman world? I think it's very difficult to be prescriptive, and I think the danger is that we fall into the trap of just labelling everything that appears against the body as, oh, it's platonic dualism, and that just sort of covers everything. But when you when you look at it, even within platonic teaching, it's only that one part of the soul is seen as sort of appetitive and dangerous. It's not that there's a sort of straight dichotomy between soul and body with one being good and one being bad. Mm. And alongside Plato, you have Aristotle, who was the son of a physician, who had a slightly different approach to this, really. What grew out of that into the early Christian church was having an unease or a shame about the body. Um, and especially about its sort of libidinous possibilities, partly because the whole concept of conception and bringing life into the world, I think, just frightened them really as much as anything else. Tied into that is some very odd, as we see it now, um, physiology. The understanding of the female body was that uh, the womb just sort of migrated randomly around the body and created great instability. And what I think Greek philosophers are searching for was you know, a sort of a purity and a stability and a sense that things could be stable. And women were seen as, as failed men. They were sort of embryos that had somehow gone wrong. <laughs> and if you start from that sort of misconception of female physiology, and if you then add that to the sort of Judeo-Christian narrative of Eve being sinful and seducing Adam, you immediately set up a, a wonderful basis for misogyny and misunderstanding of the role of the body, especially um, women's bodies. Um, how did you become interested in the, the subject of the body? looking at the tension, as I saw it, between a sense that we are made in the image of God, and yet the ascetic tradition, um, from quite early on, 
appeared to be very uncomfortable about human beings having bodies and kind of wanted to punish or limit them by fasting, by uh, renouncing social and sexual intercourse, by um, giving up sleep and by treating the body as if it was an enemy. And I wanted to explore this in the context of the core Christian doctrine of the Incarnation. I felt if Christ was enfleshed, if he was born of Mary, um, if he was fully human as well as fully divine, he had a body, and he had a body with all the things that our bodies have. In the Syrian, Syrian tradition, the creed that is translated um, into English as um, he was made flesh, they translate as Jesus was clothed in the body. And this whole image of clothing and being, uh, you know, sort of presented was just... Um, absolutely gripping for me. And that's really what sparked the whole body thing and the whole book. I then had to plow through the Christological debates of the first five centuries of the Christian church, uh, where they were thrashing out what it meant for Christ to be divine and human. Um, and along the way, discovered that uh, <laughs> where women fitted into this seemed increasingly problematic. It seems that there was some conflict with the early church fathers in terms of if women were considered in the image of God or if they were not or how they were. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think we're talking about the norm being seen as male and female being the other, which is a concept that's very familiar in the modern world. So I think it was partly out of fear and partly out of medical and philosophical texts that women were automatically viewed as faulty men, as dangerous and possibly not even having souls. Tertullian talked about women being the devil's gateway. And uh, the Desert Fathers used to say, well, you shouldn't even eat with a woman because, you know, this might contaminate you, might corrupt you. I suppose if we're looking at the ascetic tradition, both in, in the pagan world and in the Christian world. The whole impetus to that was to seek perfection and union with God. And this is where the tension about the incarnation comes in, because if you're seeking union with God, surely you've actually got to accommodate the fact that Christ had a body. <laughs> but the danger was that you would focus more on the soul and the spiritual and think, well, anything to do with women is going to, going to risk that, and therefore let's just not go there at all. The Cappadocians say what has not been assumed has not been saved. In other words, Christ had to be fully human in order to um, enable us to share in his divinity. So there has to be this anthropological integrity of mind, soul, body, spirit, emotions has to be there in human beings, has to be there in Jesus. And I think what we have in the early church is so much baggage about the one little bit of a woman, you know, that is not like a man and what damage that might do somehow to the image of God and to men. You know, why, why was it going to damage men so much? You know, the taboos that you get within religion about women being unclean when they're menstruating um, and how that means they can't perform certain rituals um, because you're not seen as pure enough when you're menstruating. So this is an issue, this issue of the things that women's bodies do that really we have no control over that somehow keep forming a stumbling block for women's redeemability. Right. And that, that leads me to a question about some of the Syrian fathers. They seem to link somehow the feminine body with the idea of repentance or even 
the fecundity yeah. of repentance. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. Well, this brings me to another of my favorite topics, which is the story in Luke's Gospel of the sinful woman who bathes the feet of Jesus with her tears. And this story was greatly loved by Syrian writers, and there were innumerable homilies um, written about it. She was a woman of the street. She was a sex worker. She approached Jesus. She saw his messiahship. And so often in the New Testament narratives, it is women and it's outsiders. It's the Samaritan woman at the well. It's Martha. It's Mary Magdalene. It's these marginalized women who see his holiness. And that there's a real tenderness there in the relationship between Jesus and these women, which the Syrians just got hold of, because our core within the Syrian religious anthropology is a really holistic understanding of the human person and of the body. But although there is some influence from Greek philosophy, it's less evident, really. And the homilies on Luke's sinful woman see that as, you know, yeah, the fecundity of, of repentance. She has greatly sinned. But, you know, the whole point about um, forgiveness and contrition is it makes it better. You know, you're not stuck in that loop. And so if you take the concept of fecundity, which seems to just scare the bejesus out of most men in these sort of religious worlds, you know, oh dear, the fact that women might have some power and might, might use their bodies to create life. And to take that image of fecundity and talk about penitence as being fecundity, because through that is the gift of new life, the gift of being washed clean through baptism and being able to start afresh as a new person. It's what Paul talks about, dying to death and being reborn in new life. You know, it's dying to sin and coming back to life through repentance. Um, and we'd love to take the birth out of all of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. From uh, sexuality and penitence in Syrian uh -huh. commentaries, you said... Here is a sinner transformed by and through her tears of grief, which not only restore her to God, but do so in full integrity as a person with a body, an attractive one at that. Yes. <laughs> not the ravaged and neglected body of the hermit. This penitent woman becomes the female mouthpiece of incarnational theology. Yeah. If you look at the story of the sinful woman, she is weeping at Jesus's feet and she is drying them with her hair. It's a highly erotic image, especially in a culture where women were expected to cover their hair. It was their crown and glory. St. Paul said, uh, it was your hair that made the angels blink, you know, it sort of distracted the angels. So for her to use this almost icon of her sexuality, her hair, to dry Jesus's feet and the fact that he didn't recoil, as you would expect a Jewish man to do, it just speaks volumes about the compassion and about her acceptability as a woman. And I think there's you know, so much we could take from that into the modern church and into the modern world. This seems such a contrast to some of the other early Christian ideas about women. In your book, Clothed in the Body, you talk about the stigma that women carried in their bodies and how it led to a certain belief amongst the Christian ascetics. They thought women could transcend their defective gender by becoming masculinized. On one hand, there were the desert mothers like Anna Sarah, who through virtue were able to change the gender of their own souls. And on the other hand, there were women like St. Eugenia, who through disguising themselves as men, defeated both gender and human nature. Can you tell me a little bit more about these women? Well, there are five uh, really key quotations that describe women as being manly because they have souls, or rather that in having souls, they somehow 
are are manly and therefore good. And the Latin word for for virtue comes from vir, which is the word for man. Um, I mean, we just give you an example of some some of the thought, and this is from the first four or five centuries. So, from the Gospel of Thomas, which is an apocryphal gospel, it didn't make it into the Bible. Simon Peter said to them, "Let Mary leave us, because women are not worthy of life." Jesus said, "Look, I shall lead her, so that I will make her male, in order that she also may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself male." will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's the Gospel of Thomas. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> then we have uh, one of the very few recorded desert mothers, Amma Sarah, who in discussion with a man who, who, you know, said something disparaging about, you know, oh, you're a woman, you know, go away, said, according to my nature, I am a woman, but not according to my thoughts. It is I that am a man and you that are a woman. And I think what she meant there was you are seeing me as a woman, you're noticing I'm a different gender, and you're frightened by that. If you were really a, a pure man, you wouldn't even notice my gender. So I am more the man than you are, because I'm actually not operating within the body at all. <laughs> all right. And then we got, um, this is Paulinus of Nola on Melania, describing her like this, what a woman she is, if one can call so virile a Christian a woman. She kind of has to transcend her gender in order to be a true Christian. And then we have Victritius of Ruin talking about um, the martyrdom of Euphemia. And these are just tiny little snippets. You need to put them in context to get the full story. Euphemia, who once her soul made masculine, did not, though a virgin, pale before the executioner. So at the point of death, because she had managed to make her soul masculine, she was going to be okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, this is from the life of uh, Melania the Younger. And some of these obviously are you know, hagiographic accounts. Who would be able to recount in a clear and worthy manner the manly deeds of this blessed woman? I mean, of course, her utter renunciation of worldly things, her ardor for the orthodox faith, an ardor hotter than fire, her unsurpassable beneficence. In other words, because she is so detached from the world, so pure, the only way she can be described is as a man. And finally, my favourite, who is Macrina, who I call the Cappadocian mother. We have the Cappadocian fathers, but um, their sister Macrina, I think, is the one who uh, was the driving force, really. And Gregory of Nyssa, her brother, says of her, We spoke of a woman, if one may refer to her as that. For I do not know if it is right to use that natural designation for one who went beyond the nature of a woman, having raised herself to the highest peak of human virtue through philosophy. She should not be passed over in silence and her life rendered ineffective. So again, there is this sense that by demonstrating her asceticism, by being pure and, and showing she had a soul, she kind of almost had to stop being a woman. She had to she had to transcend gender. The women that you just described, they devoted their lives to this. They changed everything. Yeah. Yeah. What what was the experience of the the typical woman who was married, had children, who was uneducated? 
Well, I think I think it was very difficult for them to perform spirituality. This is something that, you know, is common for so many women, isn't it? You know, whatever your religion, whatever your faith, whatever your background, that, that women generally are holding the baby. I mean, I often say, you know, all these fathers of the church had someone else to darn their socks and cook their dinner, you know? Um, and no wonder they could write so much because they weren't having to do this. I mean, we don't know because in a way... A lot of what is said about women in late antiquity has been recorded by men. How would we know what it was like for women? Because they weren't literate by and large and we don't have their voice. We do know that, and we can see this from St. Paul, that wealthy women, particularly if they were widows and were no longer sexually active, could be really useful as patrons, but kind of in a supportive way for men or providing money to support the church. Hmm. The other thing you could do was decide you were going to be a professional virgin. And this is what Macrina did. Um, her fiancé died and she said, okay, well, that's it. You know, God's taken away the, the possibility of me marrying. And so I'm not going to do that now. I'm just going to run the household. She ran it along very egalitarian lines, actually, and cooked all the, own, all the bread for the household. So she was crossing um, a social line as well, but, you know, by doing things that normally the slaves would have done. So she was very interesting in that way. I've called the chapter Virgins of God, Manly Women and Transvestite Saints. And there are loads of legends, especially in the Syrian tradition of women who dressed up as men, ran away into the desert, lived ascetic lives, and only when they come to be buried, people suddenly realize, oh, actually, it was a woman. They weren't viewed negatively. I mean, were, were they revered? They were, well, yeah, they were, and people were so surprised. I, you know, I'm just looking here for a poem I wrote about Macrina. It was basically about how she, you know, was there to bolster the, the men in their spiritual endeavors, you know, having theological discussions with them. But it's all recorded by her brother, so who clearly greatly revered her. Would you be willing to share your poetry with me? I could. <laughs> <laughs> This poem is being published in uh, an anthology of poems about descent, published by Beautiful Dragons. Sister and friends to the 4th century Cappadocian fathers of the church, Macrina embraced virginity on the death of her fiancé and ran her household on Anessi on egalitarian lines. So this poem is Macrina, and it starts with a quotation from St. Gregory of Nyssa. She should not be passed over in silence and her life rendered ineffective. No, I will not. God gave me choices when he took the man I was to marry, and I will not lie down beneath another and watch my belly swell with seed. I will bind up my heart in place of leaking breasts and mother those brothers of mine. Ah, for all their philosophy, they can find no word for me but bastardized masculinities. They envy my manly soul, praise me for fathering their orphaned selves. I will not rouse the skivvy from her thin sleep, but let her rest. I'll take the yeast, crumble its humility into flour, then wait and wait. They rose and blessed me for guarding and forming their piety. I left them to shape their futures, punching out their doctrines. And when they come from time to time, wearied and dusty from the world, they eat the bread I've baked. I will not waste the crumbs. 
Wow. Fantastic. <laughs> so I, I, I did warn you it was long. Oh. So, yeah, there was a role for women, but they couldn't really they couldn't really do it as women. They had to do it in this slightly degendered way. How do you think that would play off today if we tried that? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I think we probably still have a fair bit of that. <laughs> um, I think secular society really is, is focused on sexual identity and on what men and women can't do. And I mean, if we look at Britain, and I really don't want to because it distresses me, and you look at Theresa May and Margaret Thatcher, kind of what they do is behave in a very sort of bullish, stereotypical, masculine way. What sort of woman can you be if you want to be successful in the world and achieve anything? Can you be emotional? Can you cry? Can you breastfeed in a meeting? Can you do these things? Or do you actually have to pretend to be a man and be some sort of ball-biting harridan? Yeah, women are still objectified, aren't they? You know, it's very easy to just get really angry about all the misogyny and stop looking for the, the little seeds of hope. You know, stop playing the, the blame game and the man game and actually just think, you know, what do women do? Women create things. You know, we use our bodies to create things and to feed and nourish things. So let's take that approach into life rather than running around with a big sword <laughs> or a small sword, depending on how endowed you are. You know, so, you know, I think we can we can find creative feminine ways of looking at the world and of trying to make it better. There is a great deal of work we could still do to understand better and, and engage in more dialogue between men and women in the world religions. Being angry and citing previous crimes and errors it doesn't really help very much. I think it's better to try and move forward in a constructive way. What I find most fascinating is the liminal space of women during the early history of the church. Virtuous women stood outside Greco-Roman culture by renouncing marriage, domestic life, and sexual identity. They also stood outside the organized church structures that did not permit them officiating service, and in some cases, not even their voice. Transcending social norms and clerical structures, some early Christian women held a surprising degree of influence in both realms. These women were vital to the early church as they stood between heaven and earth by exercising powerful gifts of prophecy, prayer, healing, service, and spiritual direction. By rejecting their bodies and sexual nature, they attained in the eyes of their Christian brothers a higher version of the Imago Dei without having to be united with a man. This virtue granted them what Tertullian described as the self-same angelic nature as a reward, the self-same sex as men. Bringing this forward to today, while many Christians no longer nominally support the substantive view of the Imago Dei, the social and cultural roots still influence the cultural and religious experiences of many women. As we close, I asked Dr. Hunt, a.k.a. poet Hannah Stone, to read one of her poems. This one is called Mary to Zosimus. It's a legend. Mary of Egypt was um, reputedly a prostitute who saw the error of her ways and repented. And she was one of these people who went into the desert, dressed up as a man, and it was only discovered after her death that she was, that she was a woman. So this is a message which she has allegedly carved into the soil by her cave. 
Mary Tazosimus. On Lichaman dead and on Gaste Libende, dead in body and living in the spirit. That's from the Old English Life of Mary of Egypt. Brother Zosimus, read this message I have left for you, scratched into parched earth by my cave. Have mercy on the remains of the harlot Mary. Commit her carcass to the earth, let dust return to dust. And pray for me, as I shall for you, remembering your many mercies towards me. If you are too feeble from fasting to gouge out my grave, then do not fear the lioness who waits with curled claws to scoop a pit wherein you may bury the shrouded shell of a woman whose skins scorched her soul as black as any Ethiopian, dusky as her skin burnt by the desert sun from wandering seven times seven years till the coarse sand became the fuller's earth which cleansed her reeking limbs. For now I am on Lichaman dead and on Gaste Libende. Remember me to your brother monks. Remind them how my story shows the glories of God's compassion to the penitent, that one against whose lascivious deeds the very doors of Mother Church stood closed was moved to beg the Holy Virgin to hear a wanton woman's prayer. How shriven I stole away to hide in the wilderness, where first you saw me, and were frit half to death by the seeming apparition. How, seeing beyond my unworthiness, you begged of me a blessing, which benison I craved from you, dear brother, whose kindness had already covered my shameful parts with half your meagre garment, for we both strove to be on Lichaman dead and on Gaste Libende. Above our heads the risen moon radiated a wan light, its silvery disk reflected below our feet, shimmering on dark waters through my uplifted hand. God's power poured forth, paving a safe passage for my sinful feet, so on the far side of the Jordan River I could depart from you, further from habitation, submitting my fiery lust to the desert's furnace, purifying the soiled flesh which had once embraced the wicked needs of so many men, so that now I am on Lichamandet and on Gaste Libende. Then I blessed the river with the sign of our Lord's passion, and now, dear Zosimus, Bless me with your tears, then cover the white wool of my hair with handfuls of golden grains, so that beneath the desert sandy soil my mortal limbs may rest at last, while my soul is borne up by angels into the refreshing presence of Christ Jesus, a bright orb between their fiery wings. This I beg, good Zosimus, for we are both on Lichaman dead and on Gaste Libende. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missioalliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. 
Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcast, and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time.